God is light. It is in God's nature to reveal himself as it is in the property of light to shine. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen through the things that he has created. And so as light shines and reveals the darkness, even so the light metaphor is used in two ways in the Bible, Old and New Testament, intellectually and morally. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are continuing our study in the book of James. As Dr. Brogy examines sin, he reminds us that we should not deceive ourselves regarding sin because sin always promises something that it can't deliver. Let's join Pastor Carl as we continue our study in the book of James. My wife and I were in New York City a year ago last December. I saw one gentleman laying there in the gutter on a cold night, covered over in his own vomit. They don't show you those pictures. They don't show you the wrecked automobiles. They don't show you the beaten wives. They don't show you the frightened children. They don't show you the adultery that comes with drink. They don't show you the violence and the murders. They just show you the beautiful glass as it sparkles. They never show you the serpent's bites. There are many foolish Christians who think I am ignorant, that I am legalistic because I say you shouldn't drink because it is strong drink and it is their ignorance that does not understand what strong drink is. That it's not whiskey and vodka and the distilled liquors that come a thousand years later, but it was wine fermented by all these big shot Christian leaders. I can have a beer. I can have a glass of wine with my pizza. And so first the man takes a drink, and then the drink takes a drink, and before long the drink takes the man. You say, what kind of death does he mean here? Is he talking about physical death? Is he talking about spiritual death? Is he talking about eternal death? And I would say all of the above. It depends on the person. A non-Christian can experience eternal death in the lake of fire. Why? Because his love for sin becomes his God. And it keeps him from yielding to Jesus as Lord. And a Christian, even a Christian, can experience physical death prematurely. And so 1 John 5, 16 <clears throat> speaks of a sin that leads to death. He's talking about physical death. Or 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. That is, you've died prematurely because of habitual, unchecked sin in the life. And certainly for the believer, death can mean broken fellowship with God. That closeness, that intimacy, that life that God wants you to know, that the devil does not want you to experience, is lost. And so the sobering command, do not be deceived. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And sometimes Christians have been deceived into thinking, well, I've done such and such, or I've done so and so, and it hasn't hurt me. Remember, it takes nine months before you get the baby. And you may think nothing has happened, but whether it's nine seconds or nine months or nine years, sooner or later you will meet the consequences. It's like the cigarette smoker who thinks that he can smoke with impunity. So one of my neighbors, now in heaven, a dear Christian man, loved him to death, had a stroke. 
And his doctor told him it was not for the 15 years you haven't smoked. It was for the 25 years that you did smoke that you got this stroke. And so James is saying, do not be deceived because sin deceives us. It always promises something that it cannot deliver. So first, we are to face temptations well. We have to understand man's nature. Secondly, if we are to face temptation well, we must understand sin's nature. Third, finally, to face temptation well, we must understand God's nature. James has told us that God, what God will not do, that is, he will not tempt you because it's contrary to his person and contrary to his purpose. So if God does not tempt, then what does he do? Well, James first reminds us God gives only good and perfect gifts. Now, I want you, beginning here in verse 17, to see how James uses invincible logic that should serve as an incredible encouragement to you. So let's start with the theology that he gives from nature, from the physical world, so that we can understand the major and minor premise that follows. Let's start by reading all of verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He describes God here as the father of lights. In fact, the Greek text says, tone photon, photon. You can hear our word photo from it. It's literally the father of the lights, which you could figure out even if you didn't know Greek. He's pointing specifically to the two great lights above that God made to regulate the years and the seasons and so forth. So the sun rises in the east and it stands high in the sky at mid-noon and then as it sets in the west, things get dark. We had a full moon a couple of weeks ago when I got up and I leave around 6 a.m. and the moon was big and glorious. I just had to stand and look at it for a second. But when I left early this morning, it was just a little sliver because it waxes full and it wanes to a crescent. But with God, there is no variation. There is never a shifting shadow. There is no turning with God because he never turns away from you. When you need him, and we always need him, it's consistent with his character because he is the father of lights. He is the originator of lights. In fact, God is light himself. The apostle John says, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. There are four God is verses in the New Testament that you should be familiar with. Maybe this chart will help you a little bit. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love. In John 4, 24, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. God is spirit. Hebrews 12, 29, it says, God is a consuming fire. But here also, God is light. And that's the truth that James is relating to us here. In fact, of all of these statements about God's essential being, I suppose none is more comprehensive than the simple statement, God is light. It is in God's nature to reveal himself as it is in the property of light to shine. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen through the things that he has created. And so as light shines and reveals the darkness, even so the light metaphor is used in two ways in the Bible, Old and New Testament, intellectually and morally. Intellectually it is used to dissect truth 
truths from error, falsehood from truth. But it is also used morally to dissect what is holy and pure from one that is sinful. So intellectually, light is truth, and darkness is ignorance and error, and morally speaking, light is purity, and darkness is evil. Let me cite a few verses to highlight this simple truth in Scripture. And so on the realm of truth, the psalmist can say this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, Psalm 119. By the way, Jewish people memorize Psalm 119. When my children were small, we learned the Christian alphabet. A is for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. B is for believing the Lord Jesus. They memorized Psalm 119 because each great paragraph or section starts with, you know, a different Hebrew letter. It's the longest chapter, by the way, in all the Bible. Did you know that? And the shortest chapter in all the Bible is Psalm 117. And the middle chapter in all the Bible is Psalm 118. That's just a little trivia in case you're interested. I ask the kids about that sometimes. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In the same Psalm, Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Likewise, in 2 Peter 1:19, Peter said this, So we have the prophetic word made more sure. If you know the context, Peter is speaking about the transfiguration, which was an absolutely amazing event, and he is in no way downplaying it. When Peter, James, and John there on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration saw Christ glorified with Moses and Elijah, he got a glimpse of the coming kingdom. But he wants us to know that while you may never have a Mount of Transfiguration kind of experience, and you won't, the test, not in this life, you will in the coming kingdom if you know Christ, but the testimony of God's word about Jesus, Peter is saying, is even more sure, to which he says you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, there are some examples of light dispelling ignorance with the truth of Scripture, but equally important is when light is used morally in Scripture to separate good from evil. And so most of us at least know Isaiah 5. What are those who call evil good? That's more and more the average leader in our nation. They are calling evil good. You can call transgenderism good. It is evil. You can call adultery good, and you can teach our children in their schools how to have safe sex, but it is evil. You can call homosexuality good, but it is evil. And on and on and on we could go. What are those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness? Likewise, if you've read Paul's epistles, then you know that several times he uses the light-darkness metaphor to contrast good from evil. For instance, in his letter to the Ephesians, the fifth chapter, he said, For you were formerly darkness... But now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. And then in verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians who grew up under the Tanakh. They studied the Old Testament scriptures. They had a biblical handle on the metaphorical usage of light, unlike most biblically illiterate and ignorant people in our day. And so it's in that context, he says in verse 17, every 
every good thing given. And every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of the lights, literally, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Here is the point. Because God is light, he does not have a dark side either to his written revelation or to his moral character. And because God never, ever, ever changes, we call that the immutability of God, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because in James' words, there is no variation or shifting shadow. Therefore, you can depend on him every single time to give you what is good and what is right. And so that's the theology behind the illustration that he is now going to present as he gives a major premise and a minor premise. Don't miss it. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. That's his major premise, that God gives only good and perfect gifts. And his minor premise is that God never changes because there is no variation or shifting shadow. And for this reason, the only thing that you can expect from God is that which is good and right and perfect for you. And you let that run through your mind. The next time the devil hikes on your back and tries to pull you down against the will of God. God gives every good thing, every perfect gift. Satan never does. And so while God gives us good things, the devil, by contrast, makes you pay for what you get. And what you get, you pay the highest price for. So not only does God give good and perfect gifts, point B there on your outline, God gives the ultimate gift of eternal life. The ultimate gift of eternal life. And if God can give the ultimate gift of eternal life, then he can give all the lesser gifts that flow from it. So having reminded us of God's goodness, James now gives us a specific illustration when God gave us salvation through a new birth. And so to drive home his point, he gives us an example. Look at verse 18 in your Bible. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Every now and then someone will say to me, Pastor Carl, isn't it odd that the gospel is left out of the letter of James and that the new birth is never mentioned? Well, they have obviously not read the book of James very carefully. As we will see, it runs all the way through this book. And here he mentions the new birth in verse 18. And the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. The King James says, he begat us. The Net Bible says, by his sovereign plan, he gave us birth. I hope you understand that salvation is not a work of man. It is a work of God. God took the initiative. It was not Adam who was seeking God, but God who was seeking Adam, where he comes into the garden. He says, where are you, Adam? God never learns anything. He never asks questions. He's the omniscient God. He asks questions to reveal, and he was coming after Adam to show him there was a huge problem. Listen, by, none, by, by, by nature, none of us seek God, no, not one. So don't you think for one skinny minute that you reasoned your way into the kingdom, that you read some book on apologetics, that you studied some prophecy in Scripture and convinced, yeah, this is it. No, the initiative did not begin with you. It began with God. He worked in your heart first that you would even want to discover and seek those things. 
God comes after us. And so Jesus, in his great purpose statement, said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, please understand, the instrument that God used to bring about the new birth was the word of God. And so we read quite plainly in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth how? By the word of truth. Just as in human birth, two parents are required, even so in the second birth. On the one hand, the Bible teaches us in John 3, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 12, that we are born again by the Spirit of God. But on the other hand, the Bible teaches there's a second person in in conversion, so to speak, or a second tool, not a tool, the Spirit of God is a person, but an instrument, and it's the Word of God. Now, you might want to put in the margin next to uh, this verse, 1 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23, write that in the margin. Or if you have cross-references, it might be there, I don't know. But look at verse 23, or listen to it, of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. In other words, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about a second birth. And don't ever forget that when you try to win people to Christ. It is not your testimony that is going to bring people into the kingdom. Your testimony has no power to convert anyone. It may give you the platform to share the Word of God, but faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You are born again of the Spirit of God. You are born again through the Word of God, through imperishable seed, the living and abiding Word of God. And when you understand that, you will use Scripture as you attempt to win people into the kingdom. On countless occasions, I've been in situations where I could say they just don't get it. There's kind of a fog. There's a veil over their eyes. And I will just keep reading scripture and scripture and scripture. And then like in an instant, the spirit of God lifts up the veil and they see the reality of it. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is a work of God. Look, you may be a tool by which you can speak the word of God on behalf of the living Christ to an unsaved man, but you cannot take credit for ever leading anyone into the kingdom. This is a work of the living God. And so James tells us that God did all of this. Why? So that, here's the reason, don't miss it. So that, circle those two words, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, do not forget in the opening verse, he's writing to Jewish people, to the 12 tribes of the diaspora. He's writing to a Jewish audience, Christian Jews who understood something about first fruits. It was a very meaningful designation and illustration. They're entirely familiar with the feast of first fruits. And if you're not, you can read of it in the, in the Torah, in the third book of the Torah, the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. It's a great chapter on, on the various feasts of Israel. So the feast of first fruits, it took place on the day after the Sabbath on Sunday after the Passover. The Hebrews would come and they would present a sheaf. Jesus died on Passover. The following day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a high and holy Sabbath. And the following day began the Feast of First Fruits. He dies on Passover. He's buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, picturing his sinless body, and he is raised from the dead on, the, on, on Easter Sunday, as we call it, on the Feast of First Fruits. And on the Feast of First Fruits, it's all by typology, it's a beautiful picture, the priest would bring a shingle sheaf and dedicate it to the Lord. 
as symbolic of what was yet to come. So you have first fruits. And sometimes I remember a farmer in Lubico said, why don't you come over? He said, the first fruits are in. I thought, oh, this is impressive. He knew, he, knew, he knew what first fruits were. It's that early crop that came in before the harvest came. And so they came and they dedicated that single sheaf and asking God's blessing, thanking God for what he might do and that he would bring a great harvest to come. And Jesus, of course, was the first fruits. He was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. And there is a great getting up day when he will come back and he'll raise up the living and the dead, some to a resurrection of life, others to a resurrection of judgment. But James is writing to biblically minded Jewish Christians who understood something about first fruits. And so as he writes to these Jewish believers, he is reminding them that we are a kind of first fruits, knowing that there is a greater harvest yet to follow. Remember, this is one of the earliest letters written in all the New Testaments, and there's not a single mention of Gentiles anywhere in it. It's for us. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. But this is written to Jewish Christians. And by the way, when the Jewish people gave their first portions to the Lord, they didn't give over, they didn't give God their leftovers. They didn't give God their raggedy stuff. They didn't give the sheep that was filled with disease or maybe filled with bugs. They gave their very best. And so are we. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. And James is telling us that of all that God created, we have been recreated in Christ, that we are of God's highest and finest. We are a picture of first fruits. And so every recipient of the new covenant is not to serve God in a half-hearted way, but with their best. And so for that reason, James is going to go on in the paragraph to follow. God doesn't want us to, to, to remain fledging little baby Christians. He wants us to respond and mature according to the word of God. The word of God that brought about a second birth will be the word of God that will bring about a mature growth in your Christian life, which we will come to next time. Now, don't miss the broad sweep of this passage. Satan's temptation only brings death, whereas God's greatest gift brings eternal life. I just want to leave that thought in your mind this week, that God gave his very best so you could have his very best. And when Satan lures you into some solicitation to evil, just remember he is a great ripoff artist. Where are you today? What's going on in the inner recesses of your heart? Where do you stand with Christ? You see, the devil will try to make you weary and to give up on the goodness of God. It's like the Christian lady I met, and she said, I just don't know if God's going to come through. I've been waiting for years to get a Christian husband. I can't seem to find one. So I'm going to marry this unbeliever. And I hope he'll become a Christian. What was she saying? She was saying God is not good and that his ways are not the best ways. 
For what fellowship has light with darkness? What have in common a believer with an unbeliever? Absolutely nothing. So she was willing to violate and break 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And James says, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You see, so often we sin because we have an inaccurate view of God. And Satan wants us to think that God has ripped us off. Augustine, many of you know him, a great 4th century Christian. Before he was converted, he had a huge problem with sexual lust. In fact, he had a long-term relationship with a maid in his household with whom he had an illegitimate son. Though no children are illegitimate, but the way he brought this child into the world was illegitimate. And Augustine struggled with this strong, sexual, illicit desire that he had. And one day, as he writes in his book, The Confessions, he said, Oh, God, deliver me from my sins, but not now. And of course, nothing changed, as you would expect. And later, as he said, Oh, God, deliver me from some of my sins and do it now. But he was still enslaved. And finally, he said, oh, God, deliver me from all of my sins, and please do it now. And it was then that he had the breakthrough and the slavery that he had to sexual lust began to change. And as he said, he was walking down the street. One of the women that he had had repeated sexual relationships with, she called out to him and she said, oh, Augustine, it is I. To which he wrote, Yes, but it is no longer I. He had now become satisfied with a new relationship with God through Christ. Will you today say, I believe God's word, that God is good and he only has good for me, that he is always consistent, there's no variation in his character? Would you say that today? Would you be willing to commit yourself to him? Some of you are believers and you need to refresh your commitment to him because you've been out here in Never Never Land and the devil's got a hold on you and he is laughing and mocking you. And sadly, many listening to me have never met Christ. You've convinced yourself you've met Christ, but you've never seen any new life. And when someone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But there's good news. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Whosoever will may come. Whoever, that means you, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning that you have been teaching us by your Spirit to face temptation well. We have to understand something about our own nature and sin's nature, but most of all, your nature. That you are a good God, that you only give good gifts. And so help us to run that deep through our heart this week when a solicitation to evil comes, that your ways are the best ways. I pray today, Father, for someone here who's never received Jesus. Help them to know that today is the day of salvation, that tomorrow may be eternally too late for them. Help them in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, for the rest of us who have crossed that line, as we're attempting to read this book once a week through these next several months, we pray its truth would reverberate deep in our souls, that we'd be changed by it, 
that we might become more and more expressively trophies of grace to the glory of Jesus. And in his holy name we pray, amen. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 003. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or giving online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays a vital role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will continue his study in the book of James. Join us then as we search the scriptures.